The U.S. defense industry is large, complex, and competitive. It is also lucrative for those companies able to navigate it successfully. The American Society of Military Comptrollers helps bridge the gap between the boardroom and the battlefield while supporting transformation in the defense sector. The Business of Defense podcast brings you inside the companies working to achieve this directly from the business leaders and to understand how they create value for their companies and their customers. For more information on ASMC, visit asmconline.org. Hey, everybody. I'm Lori Rudiman. Welcome to Corporate Drinker, a punk rock HR production. In each episode, Corporate Drinker explores the intricate ties between work culture and alcohol. Now, there's no judgment here. The podcast tells stories of regular people like you and me who may have complicated relationships with drinking. I'll talk to leadership gurus, therapists, addiction specialists, and even HR and marketing professionals who have hot takes on how and why alcohol and work have become so interconnected. And of course, I'll speak to brilliant people with big ideas on cultivating genuine cultures of inclusion and belonging so leaders and employees can enhance their work environment and reduce unnecessary conflict with or without alcohol. On today's episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Ben Yerksa. He's the CEO at Opus Genetics, and has decades of leadership experience in both the C-suite and on corporate boards. Ben is on the show today because we've known one another for quite a while, and he has an interesting and I think progressive view about the intersection of alcohol and work. You know, they say culture starts at the top, and I truly believe that. So if you're interested in hearing a conversation with someone who's actually thought critically about the world of work and the appropriateness of alcohol. Well, sit back and enjoy this discussion with Ben Yerksa. Hey, Ben, thanks for chatting with me today. Happy to be here. Yeah, um, let's pretend I'm a 10-year-old and I've never met you. And I'm like, hey, Dr. Yerksa, what, what's your job? Like, what do you do for a living? <laughs> well, I... I lead teams, lead a small company. We're working on gene therapy, which is essentially potential cure for blindness in kids. And uh, believe it or not, we use a virus that we inject in the eye and it goes in there and changes the, the DNA and fixes the problem. Well, that's an amazing solution. And boy, what a what a mechanism to fix things with an injection in the eye. Oh my goodness. <laughs> like I, I'm amazed at the science, but I don't even want to think about it, you know. Well, I'm so glad you're here. You know, you're not only the CEO of this organization, but you've had a long history of leading companies. So what's your leadership history like? Well, started out really leading R and D teams. So you know, organic chemist by training and just kind of knowing that in drug discovery, drug development, it truly takes teams to, to move projects along. So kind of learned how to lead scientists through that process uh, from different backgrounds. And, you know, I think over time, just realized people were willing to follow me. <laughs> so uh, just kind of kind of ran with that. And um, once I was out of the lab, it was really just kind of full time leading people and being a manager. Yeah. And uh, just over time, moved up the food chain, you know, bigger, bigger and bigger teams. And then at some point kind of realized smaller is better. <laughs> so <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. um, kind of really, I think, found my, my niche in a small company leadership. And you've primarily led teams here in the United States, correct? 
Yes, although I've served on boards um, elsewhere. I was on a board in a company in Paris, which which is nice while it lasted. Yeah, yeah, ooh la la, I love that. <laughs> it's perfect for talking about drinking. Well, I'm I'm curious about what you stated that your early career was around managing scientists, and as you moved up the ranks, you know, your teams became more diverse. Um, what's the difference between managing a scientist and managing someone in marketing? Well, I think it's probably an overgeneralization, but I think a lot of scientists tend to be a little bit more introverted. So when we sort of did like basic personality profiling of my teams, it'd be like 90% were introverts. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> and, Mary DeMond, so, I understand. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. And so um, you have to get people out of their shells a little bit and you have to inject. I'm an introvert too. So I had to learn to flex to kind of get people to get their juices funneled and get people to talk, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you, how do you do that? Because I think there are probably a lot of like, I want to say unvalidated ways, like people have ideas about how to get teams together, but you bring a scientific approach to this. So how do you get people to flex and kind of gel and talk to one another who might otherwise be like, no, thanks. Yeah. A couple of, couple of tricks I've learned. There's a, there's a mental part and a physical part. And sometimes you just need to get people moving like more kinetically. So people overthink stuff. So I try to like, we've done like martial arts stuff, you know, oh, or we go, cool. you know, ax throwing or whatever, just to get people moving a little yeah. bit, you know, you know, yeah. Hopefully not too much alcohol about ax throwing. Yeah. 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 No, but a little bit always helps. So, all right. So uh, you get them moving, you get them kind of mingling. And I think you're right. Like as a runner, um, there's something about running solo, right? You run, you finish your own race, but it's something really beautiful to be part of a crowd, to be part of a movement towards that finish line. And you end up striking conversations, striking up conversations. So that right. makes or sense. if you do something that's no one's ever done before and you've certainly never done it as a group then you have this common experience and you can always go back to it and make jokes about it so. yeah yeah i like that all right so you know i think a lot of people assume that uh culture starts with human resources i don't know why i hear this all the time as i speak around the world right they think somehow hr is the gatekeeper for culture but i think it starts with the ceo but you tell me what you think i have to agree yep i think that um the strongest culture I've experienced was at Inspire, which I know you know about. Well, wait, tell everybody what Inspire was. Okay, so Inspire was a small biotech company in Research Triangle Park. It was founded in 1995. I was employee number six. Christy Schaefer was employee number one. She became the CEO and she was my boss for 10 years. Yeah. She set the tone. And uh, it was very clear that the culture came from the top. And even when she, in the early days when she wasn't the CEO, she was still setting the culture and the tone because she was like the key person. Yeah, yeah. So what was the culture like there? We used to describe it as sort of fast and feisty um, or sort of can-do attitude. You know, um, we were kind of punching above our weight in a sense. We're a small company in a big pharma environment. And so we had to really, we had to really stick up for ourselves against yeah. the bigger players. And that earned respect externally, at least. And so when we'd win battles or we'd do a little bit of fundraising, you know, we made T-shirts, we had parties, you know, we, we celebrated every win, small, medium and large. Yeah, I remember that. Um, and we know one another because my husband worked in your organization and... You know, one of the things I do remember were stories of celebrations. And that's why I wanted to bring you on today, because they were celebrations, you know, around 
great milestones, but also individual and human celebrations. And some of them had alcohol and some of them didn't, but I wanted to get your take on that and the role of alcohol and culture. So do you have any broad thoughts on that? Yeah. So I was thinking about this, you know, kind of in advance. And I think Inspire is a good example because the company started small and grew, became a public company. And, and you know, you sort of culture changes over time as companies grow, right? Mm -hmm. So in the early days, I think there's a common thought that to be a cool startup, you have to all go out and drink together. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, right. It's like, it's obviously, it's not true, but it's like this thing. Like if we yeah, don't it's a trope. go out after work and you know, have a few drinks, then we're not a cool startup. Um, but what Inspire did was they had um, the research team, there was a refrigerator in the back loading dock. And so they had these loading dock parties where, you know, on a Friday afternoon, four o'clock, get out early and um, just go to the loading dock and hang out and drink a beer. Yeah. Very casual, you know, not required, but just, you know, obviously don't go back in the lab after you've had a beer, but. You know, <laughs> right. <so>. I mean, <laughs> do you now tell us all how this is done. Yeah. <laughs> But um, it kind of started there with just this informal gathering at the end of the day on Fridays mm -hmm. where we call it the doc party. And as we grew, the people in, in clinical were like, hey, what are all these research people doing? I want I want in on that. And so they started to join us and it became a thing where every every Friday we had this informal gathering. And, you know, again, not not a big deal. You know, you either go or you don't. Um, very informal, but we had a stocked fridge of beer on the loading yeah. dock. Yeah. You know, I think about that and it seems, you know, innocent. It seems like it's, uh, you know, building team cohesion, which is really important, right? And the cross-fertilization of departments is totally cool. There are some people out there who would say, well, what if you didn't go to that dock party? Did you still have the opportunity to meet people, to make connections? Could people go there and not drink? Like the, these would be the challenges that maybe critics of that would have. What do you, what do you think about that? Right, I think that's, that's valid. You know, this is back in 1996, 97, where I think, you know, did we have non-alcoholic options, you know, uh, besides water, you know, I don't know. I think, I don't really remember whether people showed up and didn't have a beer, to be honest with you. Yeah, but, yeah. But um, it doesn't feel like that wasn't an option, but I don't remember that being right. the case. Okay, yeah. that's fair. So in your career, you know, you've moved on since Inspire, but you know, I, I would say it was a company known for its culture, right? And I would imagine moving forward, you're trying to instill the, the type of celebratory, happy culture in your organizations moving forward, right? You take pride in the success of your people. So how are you doing that now, especially in, I think, a more enlightened environment where we think about alcohol differently. So what do you, what do you do with all that? Yeah. So current company Opus, you know, I think one example is we did some kind of team building out at night. We went to boxcar and we played video games and stuff like that. And yes, you can go and have a beer if you want, but there's, that's not the main event is was drinking. The main event was playing games and having fun and see who's good at air hockey, you know, yeah. and uh, <laughs> that kind of stuff. And you know, took a lot of pictures, had fun, went out to dinner. And that was, you know, it was a great event. It wasn't centered around alcohol. Alcohol was an option, but it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, the, the organizing part of it. Yeah. I, I noticed myself, like we, we had something to, to celebrate where we, we were going to have some champagne. Mm -hmm. And I was like, guys, we need to have something else, like yeah. get some sparkling apple juice, you know, this is like 11 a.m. 
<laughs> I don't like champagne anyway, so it just gives me a headache. So yeah. I made sure we had something, you know, that, that was non-alcoholic. But I had to do that myself as a CEO to make sure it happened because it wasn't going to happen otherwise. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, I think about um, so many people who create work events and just the default assumption is, well, we've got to get together. We've got to have team cohesion. They like try to force fun to happen. And to your earlier point, it always centers around alcohol. And I just love your approach because even though you're right, the night out at boxcar playing arcade games and air hockey is about coming together and having fun. It's really about business principles, right? It's really about getting people to work together better, to solve bigger problems and to enjoy themselves along the way. Am I correct in that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it does sound cheesy as hell. We're gonna do team building, you know, whatever, but it does help. <laughs> <laughs> why, why do you think it helps? Uh, I mean, I think when you do something like that, you can observe different behaviors for the days and weeks to come where people are just more comfortable around each other, they're more talkative, they're more open with each other. You, you can just see it and feel it. Yeah. I mean, I think that's interesting. I would hope so. I think there are other people for whom team building triggers social anxiety or whatever. And I think that's where sometimes the overindulgence of alcohol can happen. But I don't know that to be a fact. I just wonder, have you had situations at work where someone has overindulged at a company event? Yes. So um, I think the most notable examples are really like board meetings. People get nervous around board meetings. I've had a couple of examples where I've seen C-level executives drink too much during board dinners to the extent where they're spilling their, their glass, spilling wine on themselves, slurring their speech. Mm. And I'm just, and everyone can see it, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, right. Wow. That's what they call that a career limiting gesture. Yeah, right, right. Well, it depends I mean, on the room. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But generally, like, it's not, doesn't reflect well on that right. person as a professional. For so sure. I've seen that a couple of times. And um, wait, I think that's surprising because I think um, a lot of people don't understand what a board dinner would be like and why someone might drink a little too much. Can you explain that? Well, so if you're a senior executive, but, and you know, the board makes decisions based on, you know, they decide which projects live or die. They decide which C-level executive. The C team gets underwritten at every board meeting. You should think about it that way. It's, it's true. Yeah. And so you're performing for the board, whether you're at dinner or in the board meeting itself. And um, so people are usually smart enough to know that. And so they get nervous because they're like, oh, I'm, the spotlight's on me. Well, mm -hmm. it is sort of. And yeah. so, yeah, behave accordingly. But when some people, like you said, when they get nervous, they, they might have a drink and then an inhibition has gone. Then they have a couple more and then they just don't even know like what's going on. And so I think, I think that's sort of what happens. But. Well, and I think you're right how it can be a career limiting move, but depending on how uh, beloved you are or well-networked or, you know, just, uh, we like the people we like because they remind them of us, right? There may be some protection afforded to some workers that wouldn't be afforded to others. And I think that's also some of the criticisms I'm hearing about alcohol in the workplace. One person may have a career limiting move and another person, they might just say, oh, well, that's Ken, you know? So, <laughs> right. Right. No, I think that's fair. Yeah. yeah. Um, have you had, well, that, that's okay. Have you, um, have you had a, moment in your career where you've had someone who reported to you or someone 
among the rank and file have one of those moments and you had to provide coaching or counseling? No. Well, that's I good. I haven't that's... had to do that. <laughs> Amazing. Have you yourself been coached or counseled? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, that's really good to hear. Well, as we start to think about uh, the concept of culture, I'm really curious if you have a guiding principle or a guiding philosophy besides that the CEO sets the tone. I mean, are there things that make a good culture universally? Are there things that you always abide by? Are there things that you avoid in creating a culture at the organizations that you go into? Yeah, nothing surprising comes to mind. I think it's really just being really open and honest all the time, being super transparent. So, you know, for me, like running a small company, I and mean, there's nowhere to hide. Yeah. And, and you can't really keep secrets. And if you do, it's just painfully obvious. So I just, I'm like, I just try to be super open and honest with information and share what would some people consider, you know, really super confidential information. I share it widely because that shows that I trust my people no matter what level they're at. I think that's right. Well, can you, you don't have to give us super confidential information on the podcast and in the research of the book, but do you have an example of a time where you shared some tough news and trusted your team to take that news and and maybe respond to it in an emotionally regulated way like does any story come to mind well i mean recently we had to downsize our staff oh. so um so got to a point where i had to lay off about two-thirds of our company and oh. so one i had to talk to the people who are going to remain but then i had to talk to the entire group and you know that's obviously really really tough so yeah. I, I did it I think in a way that was just super open and honest about the situation, why it's happening. And, and everyone got the same information at the same time. There were no pockets or silos. It was just, you know, rip the bandaid off kind of, kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and everyone took it really well, even, you know, whether they stayed or left, cause you have sort of you know, survivor syndrome when you, when you stay. Oh, and, heck yes. Yeah. Um, so, so that's sort of one recent example, yeah. I think where, um, well, I just wonder if everybody got that news and then went out drinking afterwards, because that tends to happen with a lot of layoffs. Both the survivors and the affected employees will get the news and then they'll go, let's all, let's all meet at the bar. You know, so do you, did that happen? Do you know? If it did, I wasn't invited. Yeah, no, you would not be invited. <laughs> That's fair. That's totally fair. Well, I wonder if you've ever worked in an organization with a subpar culture that drives you to, you know, over-index on that because culture is very important to you. And sometimes we focus on these things because we didn't have it ourselves at a point in our career. Yeah, I think so. So I was at a company sort of after Inspire and before where I am now where I felt like, I'm trying to think, I don't know how I'd describe the culture, but there were... Uh, a lot of people around the same age, they were in their early 30s, young families, and very, very ambitious or very fit, but they also like to drink. Yeah. And, and um, they were sort of macho about it. Oh, um, yeah. And so that, that was interesting. And I, I had a whole bunch of vice president level people that were also really whiny. <laughs> and that's like, <laughs> if you want to get on my nerves, start whining. That's like, 
that's my trigger, right? Okay, so I had to do like an intervention where I wrote down like things you can, I expect of you as a vice president, things you should never do. But, Actually, one of the things on the never do list was never get drunk at a work function. Yeah. Wait, is that, that was that almost 10 years ago? So. That, that was something you actually had to physically point out to your leaders. I wrote it down as a bullet points explicitly. Wow. Wow. You know, a lot of people think, um, and so I, I believe this to be true myself, that when you have a team event or a work function where everybody's drinking and then you expect people to come in the next day, and oftentimes it's centered around like strategy meetings or offsites, their cognitive ability to do strategy the next day, the thing they are hired to do, the thing you're coming together to do is like, it's eroded, right? It's it's not even possible because just your brain chemistry the next day after a hard night of drinking does not allow you to do that. So I wonder if that's part of what you were, uh, what you were struggling with, you know, or what maybe your vice presidents were struggling with. You can't function, I don't believe you can function at a high level after physically getting drunk the night before. Yeah, yeah, it's, that's that's kind of a flunker idea. Um, so I'm not sure that was necessarily what's happening here, but yeah. um, if I'm doing any kind of offsite, where there's you know some kind of schedule like that, the the, the party always happens after you're done with the hard work. <laughs> I think that's right. <laughs> it's like people who go hard on the first night of a conference. I'm like, what are you gonna do day three? Yeah, you pace know? yourself, man. Right. <laughs> Well, and that, and I do want to end kind of talking about um, the conference community, because I know you go to a lot of conferences, you go to a lot of galas as well, fundraisers for, you know, charities and not-for-profits. So what's the culture of drinking like in the world of, you know, pharmaceuticals and, and op ophthalmology? Like, what's that all like? Seems the same throughout. I mean, you know, when people are, are sort of out of town on a trip and you're at a conference, you know, people tend to drink every night, I would say. If you really want to use that time to connect with people as much as possible, going to the bar later at night is actually a good strategy. Whether you drink or not, it's a good time to meet people and get people to talk. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, it's not a bad strategy, actually. Yeah. Um, so I, I've done that many times where just kind of at the end of the night, circle around the bar and see who's there and just talk to people. Yeah. And feel okay about drinking like another, like your 15th Sprite of the day? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I like my cocktails too, but yeah, you know, I'm not, sure. not, not like, um, it's just, it's a, people get comfortable in that environment and they're more likely in a one-on-one -on -one at the bar to open up about stuff that might actually be important for, for what you're, you need to do. So I think that's, that's reasonable, but you're right. Then there's receptions and there's, there's all this stuff. Um, uh, so you just have to be careful. I mean, for me, I just, for example, I always make sure the first thing I drink at a reception is a soda water. I just start with that. Yeah. Yeah. At least <laughs> you're one, there, one you know, behind everybody. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But nonprofits. Now, if you're doing a fundraiser. Right. And I, and I'm, I remember you being intimately involved in planning some of these fundraisers. If I'm not Yeah. Mistaken. I was uh, CEO of Foundation Fighting Blindness for yeah, five years. Yeah. And, and, you know, when you're in a big room and you're trying to get people to bid on stuff at an auction, I mean, let's face it, alcohol is great. Oh yeah. You want people's inhibitions to be low, so that, so that people bid. It's a fundraiser. Yep. So that's just uh, a little bit of easy social science. You know? <laughs> well, and I and I um I I appreciate and recognize that social science, and I also recognize the voices who are like, well, it should be another way, and. I, 
cool. It could be another way, like suggest it, you know, like suggest a better way. The playbook that right now, yeah. but you're right. Yeah. How else can you get people to be as generous in a big room and less inhibited right. without alcohol? Yeah. I don't know and, the answer and, to that. And same thing with the um, going to the bar at the end of the night, like important relationships are formed, right? You hear pieces of information. Maybe you get connected. You hear about job opportunities. And it's probably not ideal that it happens around a bar and it's centered around alcohol, but until somebody, you know, hacks their way into a different way of doing it, I'm not, I'm not sure the alternative. Have you thought at all about any alternatives? Well, look, I mean, morning coffee meetings are also really good. Um, you know, if you can get one-on-one -on -one and that's also a comfortable environment for people yeah. in a coffee shop, you know, I think that's also a good one. But you're less likely to walk into a coffee shop at a conference and see someone sitting by themselves where you can kind of cozy up and no. you know what I mean? It's not like there's a coffee bar bar. <laughs> no, no, no. They're standing in line to get their crappy Starbucks at McCormick Place and then they're off to like a concurrent session. You know? Yeah, totally. Totally. That's fair. Well, I'm so glad that we were able to talk a little bit about culture and alcohol. Is there anything I haven't asked you that you would like to share with me? No, I think I think it's interesting that you're tapping into what what I noticed as a movement too, in terms of just making people comfortable that alcohol is not required for certain things. And I've just I've noticed it too. You see it in restaurants where there's mocktails and things like that. Just all that stuff you, you can you can see it, you can feel it. And so mm -hmm. I think you know it's certainly a healthy thing. It makes me a little more conscious of it myself. So I think that's right. it's all good. Do you notice it um, when you do notice it being geared more towards younger workers? Because that's the other thing I'm hearing a lot of, like younger workers are demanding more mocktails or more alcohol-free events. And I think younger workers are just braver maybe, you know, and they are, they feel less and like less inclined to like, I don't know. I don't know. You tell me, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Have you? I, I think, I think that's what I'm observing too. I think it's younger people. Um, they're very health conscious, you know, and um... wait, wait, yet they're vaping more. You know, so it's like, <laughs> are they? No, I don't know. Yeah, I shouldn't generalize young. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and eating more gummies. But, you know, I mean, they, they make their choices differently. But yeah, I think it's interesting that you've seen it among younger workers as well. So it's definitely something to pay. And attention. I have heard from fellow board member, a board that I'm on, that um, people are doing a gummy instead of alcohol, you know, and so that's that's mm -hmm. like, that's real. And, and hearing stories about people that have just given up alcohol entirely. And when they get home from work with a hard day, they just have a half a gummy and they're fine. Yeah. All right. See you soon. Bye. Okay. Thanks. Bye. The Corporate Drinker Podcast is a special series brought to you by Punk Rock HR. If you like what you heard, head on over to your favorite streaming platform and leave a five-star rating and a review. You can also head on over to punkrockhr.com for news, information, show notes, and all the good stuff related to Corporate Drinker. This episode was expertly produced and edited by my friends at Emerald City Productions with special help from Danny and Michael. That's it for today's show. Thank you for joining us. We'll catch you next time on the Corporate Drinker Podcast.